Welcome to Grounded Hope. I'm the host, Renee Wild. We've created this podcast to examine the past, present, and future of regenerative agriculture, to design a roadmap for a more resilient way of living by building healthy food systems and healthy communities that can adapt with the changing climate. Today, we turn to the ground beneath our feet to bring you stories from two agricultural pioneers in Ohio. One is a farmer who turned to cover crops in the 1970s to replenish the soil in his fields. The other is an award-winning soil scientist researching how those healthy soils can be used to combat climate change. And we wrap this episode up at an urban mushroom farm in Dayton whose gourmet mushrooms are not only good for you, they're good for your soil too. From the highways to the hedgerows, we bring you Grounded Hope. If you want to talk to David Brandt during planting season, you'll have to do it in his office. We're inside the cab of his blue late model New Holland tractor. Dave was up until 2 a.m. last night, planting with his grandson on his farm in Carroll, Ohio. And this morning, he's back at it, planting soybean seeds directly into last year's corn stubble on this 100-acre field a practice commonly referred to as no-till. It was a loud, bumpy ride, so the sound quality is a little rough in places. Here's David Brandt talking while he's driving the tractor. 1969 was the first year that we no-tilled using an Alice Chalmers corn planter. In 71, we were 100% no-till and have been ever since. No-till is an ancient farming technique going back 3,000 years. Early humans would poke a hole in the ground with a stick, drop a seed in that hole, and then cover it up with dirt. But it wasn't until Edward Faulkner's 1943 book, The Plowman's Folly, that no-till methods started to gain traction in modern agriculture. Faulkner argued that plowing was the single greatest misstep in the advancement of agriculture, and instead suggested that farmers should leave crop residues at the surface of the soil, only working them into the upper layer of the soil using a disc harrow or other surface tillage. Although Faulkner was mocked in his own times, this Ohioan is now widely considered to be the father of conservation and no-till farming. Sixty years later, about 35% of farmers in the U.S. use these no-till practices. It wasn't regenerative farming then, it was conservation farming. I'm not moving much soil or not having erosion from the fields. So that was a reason that we went to no-till. Since World War II and the introduction of agrochemicals, No-till farming in the U.S. has depended on the liberal use of herbicides and pesticides to kill the weeds and insects. In the 1990s, research began to show that by planting a cover crop of nitrogen-fixing plants in the fields during the off-season, and then tilling those plants into the soil, prevented water runoff in the soil, reduced weeds in the field, and helped to control pests and disease. Uh, We started in 78 uh, with cover crops because we started losing yield just by no-tilling corn and beans together. And we found that uh, rye really worked well to suppress uh, the winter annuals. It increased the soybean production by about 4%. Late 90s, I met Steve Groff and we started planting peas and radishes together as a cover crop and that worked extremely well. The radishes went deep and helped to break up the hard pan. Winter peas give nitrogen to radish so they got bigger. Steve Groff is a regenerative farmer and the author of The Future Proof Farm. The tillage radishes that Groff was developing on David's farm turned out to be stellar at loosening the compacted soil and improved the organic soil matter so that David achieved bigger yields on his corn crops. Down the road, 
A field of waist-high foliage is dotted with red crimson clover flowers and purple hairy vetch flowers. Sunflower skeletons from last season bend gracefully over the lush foliage. David will use a different type of no-till method in this field. In a couple of days, he will plant directly into this big cover crop and then run a piece of equipment with a roller attached over the field to bend the foliage so that it lays on top of the newly planted seeds and acting as mulch for the soil as it decomposes. Most of our cover crops for corn has at least 10 species in it. When we started using nine and 10 for corn, it eliminated the use of uh, nutrients by 75%. In other words, our nitrogen rates went down, our row starters went way down, our chemicals were reduced by as much as 60%. And that's when we started calling regenerative farming because we were regenerating the soils by the use of the diverse root system that each one of those plants give. The 10 species we use have root zones from two inches deep up to five foot deep. David's cover crop rotation starts with sunflowers, sun hemp, and cow peas as a warm season lagoon. Then we use crimson clover, hairy vetch, winter pea, balanza clover, barley, some rye, and flax. David found out that using flax on his fields helps build the mycorrhizal community, which increases a plant's resilience against insects and diseases. So we eliminated the use of insecticides and fungicides 13 years ago, and all the corn and soybeans we plant today are what I call naked seed, they have no treatment. David is a technical advisor for the Ohio State University's Lima Campus 10-year, 600-acre regenerative farm transition research project. The soil and the fields surrounding the campus have been severely compacted from years of conventional farming. David came up with a plan that divides the farm into three distinct areas. One that uses conventional practices for a baseline, one that uses no-till practices only, and one that uses no-till and cover crops. David and his son went in early this spring and sowed peas and oats in the cover crop fields. Yesterday the farmer was planting corn in there and he said the peas and oats were about a foot tall and the soil was damper and looser than any other soil that he was planting on that farm. So it's quite exciting to work with professors from Ohio State to show them what we can accomplish by using roots rather than using tillage. We have to consider soil as a living entity. It has divine powers, if I may put it that way. If there is any place in this universe, solar system, in which death is resurrected into life, that's soil. Where the dead material, whether it's plants or animal, that death feeds life. Because soil organism convert that dead material, plants, animal, termites, whatever is buried into the soil, they become mineral eventually. And the new plants, roots, absorb those minerals and the life begins again. And that resurrection happens only in soil. And therefore, soil is a living entity. It's a life-giving entity. It not only supports life, it's a life in itself. And like any other living thing, soil must have a right. Simply because you own it does not mean you can do with it whatever you wish. Dr. Rattan Lau is a pioneer in the carbon farming movement. He has been studying how this combination of no-till, cover cropping, and crop residue mulching practices, like what David's doing, can help combat climate change. We're outside Cotman Hall on the Ohio State University's main campus in Columbus, 
where Dr. Lau serves as the director of the Rattan Lau Carbon Management and Sequestration Center, which the university renamed last fall in his honor. I got into carbon sequestration for different reasons. I was working in Africa for many years, like 20 years. I was based in Nigeria. And there, the soil under forest would have organic carbon content of uh, maybe 2%, 2.5% in the surface layer under forest. And you clear it for agriculture, soil erosion, very high temperature, like uh, to 45 degrees Celsius. That would be about uh, 45, would be 112, 113 degree Fahrenheit. Soil temperature might be even more, like 120 degree Fahrenheit. And therefore the organic matter content would decrease from 2% to 0.2%, one-tenth, within perhaps five to 10 years. And as the soil organic carbon decreases, soil will become very hard, very compacted, uh, very difficult to work with, very difficult to dig, and plants would not grow. Crop breed would be very poorly, and soil erosion problems would be very serious. So the goal was how to restore organic carbon. This was in the 70s and 80s. And uh, then, of course, in 90s, the question came, can soil carbon be stored for climate change mitigation? So nothing changed as far as the research is concerned. Only one more objective came, how much can you offset fossil fuel emission by sequestration of carbon in soil? Dr. Lau has won some of the world's top prizes for his research into sustainable soil management, global food security, and mitigation of climate change including the Japan Prize in 2019 and the World Food Prize in 2020. He says there is a growing interest in making agriculture a solution to the global problem of climate change, because agriculture contributes about one-third of the CO2 equivalent of all anthropogenic emissions, both directly and indirectly. So farming operations should be such so that we decrease emission from farm operations. When soil is turned for planting, it mixes underground carbon-containing molecules with atmospheric oxygen, creating greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and leaving the soil depleted of life-giving carbon. Incorporating no-till practices in agriculture can drastically reduce the amount of carbon being lost from the soil. But it's not enough to just reduce the amount of carbon dioxide released by farming. In order to stay under the two-degree rise in pre-industrial temperature levels that scientists say would avoid more catastrophic climate events, we need to remove the vast amount of CO2 that's already accumulated in our atmosphere. Dr. Lau says that plants are the answer. Plants use energy and sunlight to convert carbon dioxide and water to sugar and oxygen more efficiently than any other method of carbon sequestration. And by using cover crops in the off-season, farmers are creating more opportunities for carbon dioxide to be pulled out of the air and stored underground as organic soil carbon. Uh, and soil is a storehouse of 25% of all terrestrial biodiversity, and their food is carbon. Carbon sequestration has the potential to remove 5% of the U.S.'s annual CO2 emissions. But here's the catch. Carbon is only stored in the soil when the ground remains untilled. If that ground gets tilled up again, that carbon is released back into the atmosphere. Dr. Lau wants to see a Soil Health Act, much like the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Acts we already have, 
that would pay farmers to use carbon sequestration practices. And this is where I've been talking about compensating farmers for doing good things. And they may risk additional costs, inputs, and they may risk reducing output for at least uh, two or three initial years when they change from one format to another format. So rewarding them for those losses is critical. Otherwise, they will not continue. New markets are slowly emerging that would pay farmers to use practices that store more carbon in the soil. Two of the problems facing the commodification of carbon credits is the lack of methodology available to test how much carbon is being captured and sequestered in the soil. The other problem is how to set a fair price for farmers. Growing carbon in soil and trees as a farm commodity, similar to soybean and uh, wheat and corn, milk, poultry, <clears throat> that you can buy and sell. So if the U.S. Farm Bill 2023, if the Growing Climate Solution Act being discussed now finally materializes and is approved, several things have to happen. We must determine what the fair price is. We must determine uh, how to certify how much farmers have sequestered. That means there's a methodology available. And we must have a market-based solution uh, so that it becomes a routine practice. So just like corn, soybean, farmer know what to expect. Dr. Lau is one of 400 people from around the world who have been chosen for the upcoming United Nations Food System Summit this year. So far there are 2,400 solutions presented to the Secretary General. We have to put this carbon trading, uh, carbon sequestration, soil health, at least one of them. So my hope, my goal is that the next farm bill in 2023 will have Healthy Soil Act. In an article in The Guardian called A New Era of Agriculture, How Soil and Mushrooms Can Help Solve the Climate Crisis, Paul Stamitz, a mycologist and medical researcher who studies the role fungi play in soil health, says that a major component of soils in terms of biological carbon is from fungi, mycelium, both living and dead. Some scientists have stated that fungal mycelium is the largest repository of biological carbon in healthy soils. At Dayton's Second Street Outdoor Farmer's Market, customers are lined up at the Guided by Mushrooms booth to buy freshly harvested gourmet mushrooms, mushroom extracts, and mushroom spice products. What have you got today then? We've got Phoenix Blue Oysters, we've got Black Pearl King Oysters, and we've got Lion's Mane. The Black Pearl Oyster mushrooms are really really good meat substitutes for the vegans. They love them because they're so thick. Once you can just kind of slice them, they've just got that meat texture that, you know. Could I have a quarter pound of each thing? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You sure can. What do we got? Quarter pound, quarter pound, pound of each. each. He's gonna, he's gonna go for the variety each. pack. Uh, my name is Michael. I've been working here for a couple of years now. I think that a lot of our job is educating people about like the power of mushrooms and not only just the functional mushrooms that you see here that we've made for the medicinal supplements, but even the culinary mushrooms here all have the ability to lower cholesterol, blood pressure, great for your heart. And we wanna make sure that we're making people aware that there are natural, perfectly great ways through food to protect your body. Mushroom farming is also good for the environment, since growing fungi doesn't require turning over the soil and releasing carbon into the atmosphere. These mushrooms are grown indoors in a soilless growing medium made from sawdust and soybean husk called master's mix. 
Here's David Sparks, whose hobby started all this. The mushrooms absolutely love it. That's what we grow most of our stuff on. There are some strains that we'll grow on all sawdust and with a supplement maybe like wheat bran. Uh-huh. Uh, we're growing some black racy mushrooms right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that We're using that and we're also going to be growing a bunch more shiitakes here pretty soon. Different recipes you use to grow different fungi. It's, it's kind of like a bakery in a way. Hi, I'm Audra Sparks. We are at Guided by Mushrooms Farm in uh, Northwest Dayton, in the tip of Clayton. Outside on a beautiful day, we're on the Stillwater River, and uh, it's a great spot. Behind us is a low concrete building that used to be David and Audra's home. Um, and he had a small tent in the garage, just started as a hobby and posting pictures on social media and stuff. He had a friend who was a chef who was like, I want those and it spread and the farm grew inside the house and took over the house and now we're a, we're a mushroom farm. Audra <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. has created their line of specialty food and health related products from the leftover mushrooms that weren't pretty enough, as she puts it, for the grocery store shelves, which she dries and turns into powder. I am an environmentalist, have an environmental law degree. Um, I'm all about doing things in a way that's not going to harm the planet. You know, like David said, growing mushrooms uses waste products of other agriculture. Our waste products can help other agriculture. Studies show that by using a fungal-dominated compost on agricultural fields, improve the ratio between fungi and bacterial in the soil critical for healthy plants, along with improved food productivity. Fungi can also increase the rate of carbon sequestration significantly. In one documented case by Dr. David Johnson for the Institute of Sustainable Agricultural Research at New Mexico State University, Dr. Johnson documented that the soil in his fields where he used a fungal-dominated compost was capturing approximately 38,000 pounds of CO2 per acre per year while supporting improved crop production. The yields of his cotton crop were double the average in his area without the use of fertilizers, herbicides, or insecticides. Mushrooms have also been used to stabilize stream banks along rivers, clean up toxic messes in the environment from forest fires in California, biocycle old buildings into new ones in Cleveland, and clean up everything from oil spills to nuclear meltdown. Um, One of the things that we do at the market, for instance, is we sell our old spent blocks. And you can see on that rack there is a bunch of old blocks. That white stuff is mycelium, which is the kind of the root system of mushrooms, to put it in a layman's way. But all that mycelium needs to do is be fed more, and it'll keep growing mushrooms. So we sell those blocks to just individuals to throw into their compost. It gets your compost going really crazy, really fast, and grows mushrooms off of it. We um, encourage people to use those to incorporate uh, mushroom growing into their landscape. You can take some of those, mix it with some sawdust or straw, kind of layer it up in a shady part of your yard and grow mushrooms. And as long as you keep putting straw or sawdust back onto it, you're going to keep getting mushrooms. Mycelium, it's kind of immortal because as long (laughs) as you just keep feeding it, it'll keep growing. You know, that's one of the ways that we can use our waste products at a small scale. This podcast is brought to you by the Community Solutions Agraria Center for Regenerative Practices. The center hosts farm-based research, educational classes, and events. They'll be hosting the Nourishing Life Conference June 18th and the 19th, 
and an upcoming seed saving school with our very own Beth Bridgman, August 14th and the 15th. Grounded Hope is funded in part by a grant from the Ohio Humanities. Our webmaster is Rachel Isaacson. Our scholars are Beth Bridgman from Antioch College in Yellow Springs and Rick Livingston from The Ohio State University in Columbus. You can go to our website at groundedhope.org to find book and movie suggestions and even recipes that reflect each episode's theme, along with questions to generate group discussion. I'm Renee Wild, and you've been listening to Grounded Hope.